Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kira McGee, and in this episode, we go back to the 10th season of the VFL in 1906. At the time, the VFL was still a work in progress, a developing entity. It had all the leading clubs in Victoria and had established a leadership position in the founding of the Australian Football Council the year before, representing all states and New Zealand. And it had led a campaign to promote the Australian game in New South Wales and offered support for Queensland as well. 1906 would see the league take its most ambitious, or perhaps its most optimistic, effort to promote the game beyond Melbourne. The league had prospered in its first 10 years. Crowd numbers were up, and the newspapers reported enthusiastic support of the game and gave credit to strong administration. And, with Melbourne delegate Henry Harrison, one of the original founders of Australian Rules with his cousin Tom Wills, there was an active, direct link to the foundation of the game. A link that would be recognised in two years' time with the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the founding of Australian Rules. But back to 1906, a year when Melbourne saw the completion of the Flinders Street Station, which is still one of the landmarks of the city. As a country that identified itself as part of the British Empire, there would have been sadness at the death of King Edward VII, but celebration to recognise the reign of George V. On a domestic level, it was also the first year that Australia produced its own currency, using Australian pounds to replace British pound notes. The use of these British, or Australian, pound notes to pay some of the players in what was supposed to be an amateur game had been creating tension in the previous seasons, which would continue to escalate in 1906. The February VFL delegates meeting had a surprising international theme. A letter had been received from a Mr Lupton of the Wisconsin University asking the league to provide rules and information about the Australian game of football. With the increased number of injuries incurred by players of American football, the American code had been losing support. The chairman of the meeting, Henry Harrison, noted that President Roosevelt was interested in football generally and opposed to the rough game played in the United States. Rather than just replying to Wisconsin University, it was proposed a letter should be written to the President of the United States and the Premier of Canada as well. A subcommittee was appointed and the possibility of international matches between Australia and the USA was entertained. March saw the annual general meeting for Carlton where there was ongoing evidence of the stress and strain and the opposition to the role of Jack Worrell as Secretary. A circular had been distributed before the meeting, criticising Worrell for not being an honorary secretary, but a paid employee that was also voting as a committee member. There was a counter-circular with the playing members of the club expressing their full support for Worrell and asking for members to vote in his favour, along with other preferred candidates. There was a noisy debate about the club's annual report, focusing on the addition to the annual report, which had a specific thank you to Jack Worrell, and the role that he had played in the resurgence of the club on field and in its finances and membership. There are allegations that this addendum had never been approved by the committee, and then there were counterclaims that had been moved and approved in the appropriate manner, with catcalls and boos and cheers from the people in the AGM, depending on whose versions of events they supported. The vote counting took all night and some members stayed the whole time to see the results declared at 6am in the morning. Jack Worrell's faction had prevailed, with the majority of 12 committee members versus the opposition's seven. 
This ensured his position as club secretary and coach was secure for the season ahead. While Worrell was effective, he clearly had the knack of putting some people off. Carlton and many other clubs would endure similar upheaval for many seasons to come when it came to passionate supporters debating who they should elect for committees to manage their clubs. The league's AGM on the 12th of April saw an application from Melbourne University to join the league as a strictly amateur club, but the response was that the expansion of teams was not possible under the current constitution. There was also discussion about the approaching 50th anniversary of the Games establishment in 1858, when the code was defined by the current Vice President of the League, Henry Harrison. Steps would be taken to celebrate this in a fitting manner. The portion of the report dealing with the introduction of the Australian game into America opened up possibilities of the game being a universal game. This brought a resounding cheer around the board table. Optimistic, I'm sure. Later in April, Old Boy, in the Argus, assessed the state of the game and declared it the most expensive form of amateurism in the world. Looking at the costs on the balance sheets for boots and uniforms, etc., he noted, The amateur footballer must be a pampered individual whose uniform costs as much as a wedding dress for a fashionable bride and whose refreshments would satisfy a well-to-do barrister. Javelin, writing in the Melbourne Leader, also touched on this conundrum. His article discussed the Port Melbourne VFA club that announced in its annual general meeting that the team would be run on strictly amateur principles. That's the way to purify the game, observed one supporter. And to chuck away any chance of winning the premiership, responded another, who possibly knew a little bit more. The season preview by Observer in the Argus noted that the interest in the game was never more widely spread and that the season was sure to be a good one. His experience at watching football allowed him to temper the enthusiasm that some had for new gun recruits, who were sure to be champions. A quarter of a century's close acquaintance with football has shown me that new men are always great men until they have played a few games. After three games, they become ordinary mortals. After six, they are sometimes given a rest. His observations on the refusal of Melbourne University's application were also interesting. He pointed out that the league had discarded the weaker teams to form a happy family of eight and that expansion would need a more compelling reason than a promise of a strictly amateur club. Observers said that amateurism would be a good principle to adopt, if the players would let them adopt it. The 1906 season started on the 5th of May. The season preview by Kikoro in the Herald on the Friday night before the game started reminds us that staging for free kicks is as old as the game itself. While we complain about players who try and milk free kicks in the modern game, the Permit and Umpires Committee of 1906 was telling umpires to differentiate between the staged fall and the genuine upset. Umpires were also told to be ready for the bluff of a cunning player. Nothing new in players staging for a free kick. Kikoro also discussed the potential problems of a prize from the Matador Cigar Company for the player that kicked the most goals in the season. A £50 reward was on offer. A significant amount of money in the day, the equivalent of about 7500 in today's money. There was no problem with a cigar company offering sponsorship. It was many years to pass before that would be an issue. No, the risk was that it would encourage selfish play. Kikoro would have preferred to see the gold medallions for the premiership team. We know now that Matador was an early trendsetter for many sponsors to offer prizes for player of the day, goal of the season, mark of the year, etc., 
as players receive this season's awards, maybe they should say a small thank you to Matador Cigars, an early commercial pioneer in the field of player prize sponsorship. Follower, in the leader preview, thought that football had more interest and more enthusiasm than ever before. He did not think that there was a problem with gambling or that players were being paid to throw a game. Yet this was another voice pointing out the myth that the game was a fully amateur one. With the clubs having access to fenced-in grounds and charging people to attend, there was always going to be a temptation to pay to attract the best talent to a club. Ironically, the club officials that were paying selected players under the table were the same league delegates that set the rules that the game was supposed to be amateur. It was all going to unravel in the coming years. An early season comment in the Herald reminds us that congestion around the ball has been an ongoing challenge. One correspondent suggested that the number of players be reduced to 15 or 16, given the unsightly scrambles of six or seven men around the ball. The complaint was, we don't see the high marking or long kicks of a few seasons ago. You can expect to hear similar complaints in today's media and around the grounds a hundred or more years on. The season opened on a hot day with firm grounds, with three of the top four teams from the previous season having wins. Essendon being the exception in losing at their home ground by seven points to an improved South Melbourne. Fitzroy unfurled their flag at the Brunswick Street Oval and had an easy win against St Kilda. The biggest surprise early in the season was in round four when St Kilda defeated Essendon for the first time in its history. After 36 winless matches across the VFA and VFL, five draws and 31 losses overall. Now, finally, St Kilda supporters could say they had beaten every team in the league. The VFL had no interstate games this year, given the ongoing dispute with South Australia on the appropriate way to fund these games and distribute gate takings. Instead, there was a game against the combined Ballarat clubs at the MCG on the 23rd of June, which was comfortably won by the VFL in front of a small crowd of 4,000 people. The reports describe a game that was a clever exhibition, but not one that was played for keeps, as it would be for premiership points. The local team wore a blue jumper, with VFL emblazoned on the front in white. Getting closer to the famous Big V, but not quite there yet. On the same day, a VFA team was playing the South Australians in Adelaide and had a comfortable win, holding up the honour of Victorian football. A return match was held in Ballarat on the 11th of August, which coincided with the VFA team hosting the South Australians in Melbourne. For reasons best known to themselves, the league created a split round over two weeks, which meant that the VFA interstate match had to compete with two VFL games. Top of the table heavyweights Carlton versus Fitzroy at Princess Park and the less interesting, St Kilda versus Melbourne at the MCG. On the same day, the VFL representative team travelled to Ballarat to play a combined Ballarat team at the City Oval, and the locals were too good for the league, winning 11-7 to 6-7. Markwell and the Australasian thought it petty and greedy by the more prosperous VFL not to give the VFA cousins some free air for their interstate game. But the VFL never really liked doing favours for the VFA, The VFA had made its position clear earlier in August when it became aware of the league changing their fixture. They regretted the league's action, but the VFA did not want concessions and they would uphold their dignity. The home and away section of the season ended on the 18th of August, when all clubs had played each other twice. Carlton finished on top of the ladder, a game clear of Fitzroy, and Essendon and Collingwood made up the top four. South was fifth, a game behind Collingwood. Before we get into the sectional games... A small digression. 
Many Richmond supporters saw their club mocked during the Tigers' lean years with the nickname Ninthmond for their knack of just missing out on the finals year after year. South Melbourne had a similar ability in the early years of the VFL, finishing fifth and missing out on the finals in 1906, 1905, 1904, 1902, 1900, 1898 and 1897. Seven years out of ten, one spot out of the finals. A consistent record, albeit frustrating for the South supporters. The clubs were placed in their two sectional groups, first, third, fifth and seventh in one group, and the teams finishing in even spots in the other group. The rounds were allocated on a ballot on the evening of the 18th of August, deciding the sequence of games and who would get the home ground for each of the last three games before the semi-finals. The most interesting result was Essendon and Carlton being drawn to play the first week of the sectionals after playing each other in the last round of the home and away games. While Carlton and Fitzroy won their three sectional games and Collingwood managed two wins out of three, losing to rivals Fitzroy, poor old Essendon season ended in free fall. In round 12, they beat second place Fitzroy, which should have augured well for the future. But with injuries and a loss of form, saw them end the season by losing five games in a row. There cannot be many times that a team has made it to the league semi-finals after losing five games on the trot. However, they had enough games in hand to make it to the semi-finals and deny South a chance at the finals yet again. The semis were played on Saturday, September 15th. Topside Carlton against third place Collingwood at Fitzroy's Brunswick Street Oval, and second place Fitzroy against fourth side Essendon at the MCG. The Herald's preview by Kikero had Fitzroy and Carlton as favourites to win their respective game. Collingwood were weakened by the loss of forward Herb Pears, who had decided to go to Queensland for the shearing season. Essendon was hoping that the return during the latter part of their season of their champion Albert Thurgood would see them return to the winners' list. Thurgood had retired after Essendon's loss in the 1902 Grand Final to Collingwood. He had returned in season 1906 to help out the Essendon team after a series of injuries reducing their playing list. He had played seven games in the season prior to the semi-finals. In addition to the two semi-final matches, the VFL had selected a team from the four non-competing clubs to play a match in Bendigo against the Bendigo District Association. The league team had an easy win, 16-22 to Bendigo's 2-2. The price of the semi-finals was the same as the previous year. Rather than the sixpence for the rest of the season, it cost a shilling to enter the ground and an extra shilling for the comfort and vantage point of the grandstand. A letter to the age on the Saturday morning proves the long history of supporters complaining about the price of admission to finals. A football supporter wrote, After all the discussion in the previous years on this subject, its action must be considered nothing short of scandalous. It would seem as if the league's one object was to amass coin. The league claimed it was to help fund the trip of the Sydney schoolboys who would be coming to Melbourne in the following week, all part of promoting the game in the northern states. Follower in the age was having none of that. He reported that the supporters felt that they were being bled dry by a league that knew the patrons of football would not miss the semi-finals and the money was being used for theatre parties interstate trips, payment of players' expenses and to provide handsome emoluments to various persons concerned with the game. The immediate effect of doubling the charge may be a financial success, but there is such a thing as killing the goose that lays the golden egg. It's going to be an ongoing theme for many, many seasons to come. 
Fitzroy took on Essendon at the MCG in front of 8,500 supporters. In the two home and away games, Essendon had won twice by five and eight points, but that was before their run of injuries and poor form. Essendon won the toss and kicked with the aid of a slight breeze. Fred Hiskins kicked the first goal for the game for Essendon, Wally Naismith equalised for the Maroons. Essendon's veteran champ, Albert Thurgood, showed that he could still compete despite four seasons off by getting Essendon's second goal. Fitzroy began to settle the game down to their preferred style, scoring another goal, and at quarter time, they led two goals four to two goals two. The second quarter saw Fitzroy playing the ball, while Essendon were more intent on holding and pushing their opponents. By half-time, Essendon were trailing by 15 points, five goals five to three two. Fitzroy's inaccurate kicking holding them back from an even bigger lead. The play improved in the third quarter, and Essendon spent more time in attack, but were not able to convert. The longer the quarter went on, the more dominant were the Maroons, and at three-quarter time, they had extended their lead to 27 points by kicking three goals to Essendon's one. The final quarter was all Fitzroy. They kicked two goals three to Essendon's solitary goal. The final score, 10 goals 12 to 5 goals 6. The leading team of the first decade of the VFL had made it to their seventh grand final. The other semi-final was held on the same day at the Brunswick Street Oval in front of 15,000 people. It was a must-win game for Carlton because, although they finished on top of the ladder after the home and around and sectional games, they were only one game in front of Fitzroy. If Fitzroy beat Essendon, as they were expected to do, then Carlton and Fitzroy would be on equal wins, and Fitzroy had better percentage. Carlton would lose their right to challenge. In fact, even if Carlton won and played Fitzroy in the final, they would lose the right of challenge if they lost that game. The rules for the right of challenge counted the finals games in awarding the right to challenge, a flaw that many were highlighting in the lead-up to the finals. To have a chance of winning the first VFL Premiership after leading the ladder almost all the season, the Blues first had to beat the Magpies. The game was played at a fast, free and open style, resulting in one of the matches of the season. Collingwood got the ball into their forward line first with their trademark fast passing, but Carlton's defence repelled the ball, and Fred Jinks scored the first goal of the day for the Blues. George Topping got Carlton's second goal, and with the Blues' forward line working like clockwork, Jinks and Topping both scored goals again to get Carlton to a four-goal lead before Collingwood had registered a major. But just as it looked like it would be a one-sided affair, Collingwood kicked two goals to get their scoring started. However, Mick Grace managed Carlton's fifth for the quarter, shortly before the bell rang. The quarter-time scores were five goals one to two goals one. The accurate kicking for the quarter reflected the quality of play from both teams. There are numerous changes of position as both teams tried to gain an advantage at the start of the second quarter, but it was Collingwood's Dick Lee who scored the first goal of the quarter. Dick Lee was playing his first season of an illustrious career where he would become one of the leading goal kickers of his generation. Hampered by injuries, including a bad knee, some reports state that he was the origin of the phrase Dicky Knee. The Magpies were playing better this quarter, getting their passing game going, but the Blues were defending well and the ball was moving quickly over the ground. Mick Grace snapped Carlton's only goal for the quarter, then a little while later Dick Condon passed the ball to Robert Strawn, who passed it again to young Dick Lee who snapped his second goal for the quarter. The half-time scores were Carlton 6 goals 3 to Collingwood 4 goals 3. Early in the third quarter, Lee had the ball again in the forward line but could only manage a point. Collingwood continued pressing and this time it was the former captain Charlie Panham that got the much-needed goal. Now Collingwood were only one scoring shot from taking the lead. 
After the bounce to restart the game, it was the Magpies that got the clearance, and Ted Rowell was too elusive for his opponent, and his straight shot gave Collingwood the lead. After conceding the first four goals for the game, they were a point in front. Carlton's hopes began to fade when Martin Gotts, one of their best players on the day, badly injured his shoulder and had to leave the field, leaving the Blues a player down against the charge in Collingwood. Shortly after Gotts led the ground, Dick Lee kicked his fourth goal for the day to extend Collingwood's lead. The Blues were able to get the ball into their forward line in the latter part of the third quarter, but inaccurate kicking meant that they did not get the reward for the effort they were making. Five shots resulted in five points being added to the score, which meant the three-quarter time bell saw Carlton trailing by three points, six goals eight, Collingwood, seven goals five. The scene was set for an epic final quarter to see who would play off in the grand final. After some even play in the centre, Collingwood wasted three opportunities to score, and this created an opportunity for Carlton. Dick Condon had the ball in scoring distance, but passed to Charlie Panham. Panham could have had a shot, but passed it back to Condon, who in turn passed it on to Ed Druin, and Druin's shot missed. Whether it was fatigue that meant the players did not think they could kick the distance, or an early attempt to wind down the clock, or just persistence with the fast passing style that was the Magpie trademark, the end result was Carlton, a man down this quarter, felt they had a chance. The Blues began bombarding the goals, and a fine running shot by Jim Marchbank was followed by a beautifully judged kick by Rod McGregor, and then a quick snap by George Bruce. Carlton had turned a three-point deficit into a 16-point lead with five minutes to go, and seemed destined to play in the grand final. However, Ted Rowell wasn't giving up as yet, and he got Collingwood's first goal for the quarter, and then Dick Lee had two more chances for the Magpies, but could not get through the big sticks. When the bell sounded, Carlton were in front by 10 points, 9 goals 10, 64, to 8 goals 4, 54. The Blues under Jack Worrell were through to the grand final after one of the standout games of the season. The grand final was scheduled for Saturday the 22nd of September. Fitzroy's captain this year was Ernie Jenkins. Ernie joined Fitzroy in 1897 and would play 182 games before retiring in 1910. A defender of sureness and dash and strength. A gallant player who took hard knocks without flinching and was good enough to represent Victoria three times. After retirement, he coached Richmond in 1913, before becoming a goal umpire in the VFL in 1920. Carlton's captain was Jim Flynn, a ruckman who started his VFL career at Geelong before moving to Carlton in 1903. He could also play half-forward or half-back, a tireless player who was a fine thinker on the field. He became captain in 1905 and was one of the older players in the VFL at 35. With Ivo Crap gone to Western Australia, there was an opportunity for a new umpire to take the reins in the biggest game of the year. Bert Reg got the nod for the 1906 Grand Final. He had played three games for Melbourne in 1901 and then begun as a boundary umpire in 1904, having the honour of being one of the first boundary umpires to officiate at a Grand Final. Now he was the first to have acted as a boundary umpire and field umpire in the Grand Final. In the 10th year of the VFL, Bert was now the third person to umpire a grand final after Richard Gibson in 1903 and Ivo Crapp for all of the remainder. The league had kept the price for the grand final the same this year at one shilling to enter the ground and an extra shilling for the grandstand. Members of Fitzroy and Carlton could show their membership tickets to gain admission. As with any event that had high demand for its tickets, there will always be unsavoury characters who try to take advantage of the situation. Police Detective Kale arrested two men for selling bogus admission tickets. They would face the courts on the following Monday. In these modern times, when we're looking for a weather forecast, 
we consult our phone apps or websites fed by the Bureau of Meteorology. In 1906, things were a little different. On the day before the game, the Herald reported, The government astronomer is to be consulted during the afternoon as to the weather prospects for the big match. Guided by his opinion, Messrs Harrison, Denain and Strickland will decide whether or not a stream of water is to be poured over the MCG ground this evening to make the green as fit as possible for tomorrow. But then, on Saturday morning, the rain began tumbling down. There was doubt that the day was suitable for such an important matter as the grand final. Telephone calls were made and inquiries flooded the league rooms during the morning. Club delegates met just before 12. The government astronomer was consulted again. Not clear on whether he had recommended against a stream of water for the ground the day before. The crowd was assembled outside the league rooms with umbrellas, mackintoshes and galoshes. The news was positive. The game was on and the clouds cleared for blue skies although the day was cool with a top temperature of 14 degrees. Over 44,000 people packed into the ground, a record for a football game in Melbourne, and this was the equivalent of more than 8% of the Melbourne's entire population. The MCG had a new stand, the Graysmith Sand at the western end of the ground, which was demolished in 1966 for the western slash Ponsford stand, and it was packed. There had been trains from all the major regional areas, so people from all over the state could come and watch the big game. For those who could get into the ground, there was plenty of pre-game action with two curtain races. A combined Victorian schoolboys team took on the New South Wales school champions, the Ford Street School. As in the last two seasons, the VFL had paid for the team that won the Sydney Schools Championship to come to Melbourne, a part of the ongoing propaganda campaign to encourage the Australian game in Sydney. Then there was a Victorian Amateur Athletic Association final of the Garland Trophy over the course of 300 yards, prefiguring the famous grand final sprints that have been held since the 1970s. The game started at 3pm. Carlton were kicking to the southern end of the ground. From the opening bounce, Carlton attacked. George Bruce got the ball to Jim Marchbank and then to Fred Jinks, passed it, who passed it to George Topping, who shot a goal, scraping the post. Two minutes of play had elapsed and Carlton were demonstrating that they were here to play. From the kick-in, it was Fitzroy's turn to attack and get the ball into their forward line. The former skipper, Gerald Brosnan, had a shot at goal and he too hit the post. At least this was early in the first quarter and not a kick by Brosnan to try and win the premiership on the last kick of the day, as in 1903. Or is that a bit harsh to bring that up again? Fitzroy continued to attack and their ruck Robert Smith took a place kick but missed to the side, scoring the Maroons' second point. After some even play across the ground, the Blues got the ball into their forward line and it was marked by Alex Bongo Lang. His shot at goal was smothered by the man of the mark, James Sharp, but the quick-thinking Bongo kicked the ball off the ground towards the goal and Jim Marchbank did the rest, scoring the first goal of the day and putting Carlton in the lead. From the bounce, Fitzroy went forward and this time Fred Fontaine picked up the ball, spun round and kicked the Maroons' first goal for the game. The cheers from the crowd were deafening. The ball was moving from one end of the ground to the other. Carlton's Mick Grace had two shots a goal against his old team, but both went out of bounds. On the throw-in, Fitzroy's ruckman Bill Walker made the mistake of holding on the ball for too long and was pinged by the umpires. Carlton's Fred Jinks took the free kick and got Carlton's second goal. After some lively play in the centre of the ground, the ball went into Carlton's forward line again and George Topping joined the list of goal kickers with his first and Carlton's third for the quarter. When the bell rang for quarter time, the crowd could draw a breath and the score was Carlton, three goals two to Fitzroy, 
one goal six. Fitzroy had some chances, but their inaccurate kicking had left them trailing the Blues. The second quarter saw the same hectic pace where each team pushed forward, some snaps that missed, good work by defence to clear the ball, just in time for the cycle to start again. The crowd was so thick on the eastern side of the ground that the fence gave way and hundreds of spectators broke through to the fringes of the playing area. While the supporters sorted themselves out, Carlton made another move forward and Mick Grace, with a determined effort, ran forward and scored his first goal and Carlton's fourth. The Maroons tried to go forward again, but Lesbeck was having a fine game in the back line and repelled several attacks. The ball headed back into Carlton's forward line and George Topping threw himself at the ball and took a clever mark. But his place kick missed everything and went out of bounds. From the throw-in, Carlton's Fred Pompey-Elliott handballed to Frank Kane, who passed it to George Topping, who kicked accurately this time for goal. After each goal, a brown homing pigeon would rise from the crowd to send a message to someone. The archer suggested it could not be anyone in Carlton, because surely they were all at the MCG. Carlton were beginning to assert themselves on the game now, with five goals on the board, with Fitzroy still having just one. After some time in the Fitzroy forward line, the ball came out to Carlton's end, and this time it was Charlie Hammond who had scored another goal for Carlton, cheering the Blues supporters and leaving the Maroon Barrackers wondering what was happening. After the play started again, it was a big kick forward by Fred Kane, which was marked by Mick Grace, who slotted through Carlton's seventh goal. It was looking grim for Fitzroy at half-time, as they had only scored one point, while Carlton had added four goals in the quarter. The scores were Carlton seven goals four to Fitzroy's one goal seven. Fitzroy needed to start well in the third quarter to get some momentum, but it was Carlton that moved into their forward line first. Fitzroy fullback George Moriarty attempted to relieve the pressure, but his kick was marked by Frank Kane, who kicked Carlton's eighth goal, extending their lead even further. Then, oddly, the momentum shifted in the game. Fitzroy moved forward as they had often in the game, but this time heard Milne part to Percy Trotter, who finally scored Fitzroy's second goal. This seemed to lift spirits, and after the bounce, the ball was pushed forward by Fitzroy when Gerald Brosnan got the ball to Bill Walker, who scored Fitzroy's third. Shortly afterwards, the ball came down the wing. Percy Trotter passed it to Gerald Brosnan. This time, the ex-skipper kicked accurately, and the Maroons had their fourth goal. The gap was still wide, but some supporters may have started to dare to hope. But the Blues were not going to let all their efforts go to waste and pushed the ball forward in their forward line, where George Topping took a strong mark passed it to Frank Kang, who scored his second goal for the quarter and Carlton's ninth. Fast play from the centre bounce, saw the ball into Fitzroy's forward line and then a free kick to play to Les Millis, who scored another goal. And then one last final dash before the bell rang got the ball to Percy Sheehan, who scored Fitzroy's sixth goal. It had been an amazing quarter. Five goals to Fitzroy and two to Carlton had seen a potentially one-sided game come alive. Carlton was still in control, but Fitzroy had given their supporters something to cheer about. The scores were Carlton 9 goals 4 to Fitzroy 6-8. Fitzroy would need to bridge a 14-point gap if they were going to achieve their third premiership in a row. In the final quarter, Fitzroy took a gamble and moved men out of defence and into the forward line. They knew they had to play an attacking style to have any chance. As it is sometimes said, risk losing the game by taking the chances to win. But this time, it was not to be. Carlton overcame their third quarter jitters and with the wind behind them, they began a scoring feast. Goals to Kane, Elliott, Grace, Little, Elliott and Beck. Six straight goals to stamp their authority on the game. 
They had actually kicked 11 straight since the second quarter. The final scores were 15 goals for 94 to Fitzroy, 6 goals 9, 45. In the second and the fourth quarter, the Maroons could only kick a point each. Carlton had scored at both ends of the ground and kicked accurately. They were the better team on the day. While the players had done their job on the field, the other person that was due credit for the victory was Jack Worrell. Four years earlier, in his first season as coach, the first coach in the VFL, he had told the press that his aim was not a useless attempt at the top in one season, but gathering into the fold young players capable of being developed into champions for the seasons after this. He had achieved his aim. In four seasons they had played two grand finals and now had broken a 19-year drought to give Carlton the premiership. There had been two attempts by the committee to sack him, but although he could clearly rub people up the wrong way, the players were loyal to him and his disciplined methods. After the game, Carlton's captain Jim Flynn said, He has given the team the brain power and the benefit of his experience, and his, and his advice has been of incalculable good. Jim Sharp, Fitzroy's vice-captain, said Carlton deserved to win. They played great football and fully deserved the premiership. Punch magazine reported on the joy that erupted in Carlton. Everybody was decorated with blue and white ribbons. Their talk was blue. Everybody wanted to get onto the blue tram. And at the end of the day, they were drinking blue beer. Well, it tasted blue anyhow. After all the excitement of the record crowd and Carlton's drought-breaking win, the football world returned to more mundane matters in October. And at the league delegates meeting... Collingwood's delegate, Ern Copeland, called for standardisation of balance sheets and reporting of expenses so all clubs could be compared. The league could then call for the books and do further analysis. Mr Chapman for Carlton said, Isn't that quite inquisitorial? The matter was seconded by Fitzroy and sent to the Finance Committee for further work. Will anything result from this initiative to enforce the league's original salary cap? Given that everyone was supposed to be an amateur... That would be a salary cap of zero pounds. At the same meeting, Mr Charles Brownlow of Geelong wanted to discuss the newly emerging role of coaches who were instructing players. The rules did not regulate them at all. If clubs could not employ caretakers without the league's sanction, then they should not be allowed to have coaches either. The matter was referred to the Legislative Committee and the necessary regulations would be made. The final act of 1906 was the second meeting of the Australasian Football Council around the Melbourne Cup. While in the future these would occur every two to three years, this meeting followed on from the establishment of the AFC in 1905. Delegates from every state and New Zealand, but no one from the VFA, were allowed to attend. It would not do to have two football entities from the most powerful football state, and maybe, just as importantly, the VFL did not want to give any ground to the VFA. The rules of the game were codified, with the main discussion points being a push for three points if the ball hit a goalpost, that was knocked back, and a ban on kicking the ball out of the ruck, what we would call kicking in danger. That was also knocked back for now. The VFL was 10 years old. It had established a national body for the national game, and it had assumed the leadership position. The game's administration provided a combination of naive enthusiasm, such as letters to President Roosevelt promoting the game in the US, but also practical steps to support the game locally, such as the Australian Football Council and the promotion of the game in Sydney, as well as running a robust competition in Melbourne. We will leave season 1906 there. Carlton were the Premiers for the first time in 19 years. 
Jack Worrell had been vindicated despite multiple efforts to push him from the club by some factions. The role of the coach was now to be regulated by the league and the ongoing pressure of secret player payments and how to resolve the problem was continuing to build. Ten years after it had been established as an eight-team competition, five clubs had become premiers at some point. Fitzroy had been the dominant club, South Melbourne could not make it into the finals, Geelong had yet to translate its potential into a premiership success, and only St Kilda remained persistently unsuccessful, despite challenging some of the clubs at some times. Join me next time as we move into the second decade of the VFL in season 1907. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.